All right, we got a few people in here. Let's, uh, what time is it here? 601, let's give them a, a few seconds to try to trickle in. No problem. Uh, how is everybody doing this evening? We got a special guest with us today. And this is actually our first time going live from the fam page. We've, uh, we decided that part of community work is reaching out to other people doing great things in the community and, and, and showcasing what they have going on because we're all part of the same community, actually. So we want to get great people in here like uh, Arthur Snorton. And um, we want to definitely talk to him about some of the great things he's doing. And really, it's like an inspiration to people. You know, that's what we want. Other people who may want to become authors, other people who may want to become leaders, in their community in many different ways. We want them to be inspired to do so uh, by Mr. Snorton. Well, I'll tell you what, first off, you know, thank you for even having this platform. Uh, you guys are doing some great things and hopefully just th this really adds to the great work you're doing to your audience. I hope everybody is doing extremely well. You know, especially if you're up in the Northeast, Midwest, please be careful. I hear it's a lot of snow heading up that way. So please be safe out here. And um, I'm just thankful and grateful, seriously. Um, you know, anytime people think enough of you to be like, hey, you need to come sit down somewhere and chop it up with us, um, you don't say no, seriously. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful, so thank you. Yes. How you doing, young black queen? All right, man. Let's just, let's just get right into it, Brother Snorton. So pretty much, we want to. We definitely want to start with an introduction. You know, tell the people about yourself, who you are, where you come from. You know, how how was life for you coming up, growing up? You know, sure thing. Well, my name is Andrew Snorton. I'm based out of the Atlanta, Georgia area. Um, originally, I'm an Illinois native. Actually, born in the uh, state of Illinois, lived there for three years. Uh, so that's where I was born. New Jersey's really home for me. I grew up in. Um, North Jersey, uh, Morris County Elementary School, and then I did middle and high school in Monmouth County, specifically at Ocean Township High School. So maybe about 40 miles south of New York, a little bit over an hour away from Philly. Uh, collegiately, I attended Wake Forest University located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So shouts to the triad. That's everybody. Uh, our HBCU community right across the street at Winston-Salem State University, down the road on I-40, uh, West Market and East Market Street. So shouts to, I got to give the shouts, UNC Greensboro, North Carolina A&T, Bennett College right across the street, High Point, um, the JUCOs, Forsyth uh, Tech, Guilford Tech, um, just everybody in the triad, just a great place to be. And I've pretty much been in Metro Atlanta since. Um, professionally, what I do now under my business umbrella, Creative Community Solutions, I have an education-based services where I do traditional tutoring, virtual tutoring, ACT and SAT prep. And I've done workshops for different nonprofits, mainly in Metro Atlanta, but also Chattanooga, Tennessee for Upward Bound. Uh, on the press and media end, um, I'm able to do my own independent coverage from uh, sports events, arts and entertainment, government and politics, uh, and then through a partnership with one of the Atlanta Media Group Status Network, I have my full broadcast show, The Conversation Corner, which airs every second and fourth Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
And thankfully, if their platform being on Roku, Amazon Fire Stick, their own app, uh, website, and then social media platforms, I've been blessed to have guests across entertainment, business, and community. And then on the writing end, in addition to doing editing um, services, I've written three books and recorded five audio books since uh, 2017. Nice. So did you go to Wake Forest for writing or English Mm. or anything? That's a good question. I'm actually a double major in English and sociology. So I guess the whole reading, writing, and analyzing group behavior, sometimes it's hit or miss, but that's that's uh, my background. And, and even before getting into what I'm doing now, um, I previously taught in Gwinnett County Public Schools, which is the largest school system in Metro Atlanta. As you can probably figure out, I taught language arts, uh, social studies, journalism, go figure. And um, it's funny, I actually did like the after school sports program um, in high school. One of the sports I lettered in was track. So I um, was actually able to get track equipment on the middle school level. So anyone out there that's run the 100, 200, 400, you know, the importance of getting your running blocks and all that type of thing. So those were some of the things that I did before moving into what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So like growing up, did you want to be a writer? What did you want to be growing up? Oh, let's see. Growing up as a kid, I wanted to be a baseball player. But then once you get to high school and you realize if you can't hit a fastball, you can't hit a curveball, you're not going to last too long. (laughs) That, that, That was my wake up call. But Originally a baseball player, then I thought maybe I'd be an attorney. And and it I I guess for me professionally, it's always been something that's been, I'll say, social service based. So even when I graduated, my first job was working with the Athens Clark County Juvenile Court System, uh, based where the University of Georgia is. And it was first time for it was an intervention program for first-time offenders. So as long as it was a misdemeanor, like vandalism where you knock down somebody's mailbox or shoplifting instead of them going through ydc a youth detention center they had to go through an eight-week program um they had to show up every week couldn't miss any time had to meet all the requirements and if they did then they would get that first offense waived and i thought you know especially if it was a first time and you just did something foolish do you just do you need to get punished for it to a degree but you taking a candy bar doesn't mean you get locked up. Like that's foolish. There's different ways. There's different ways to quote administering discipline and making sure people don't get caught up in the system. Um, So that was really my first job. And then after that, I taught um, middle school, like I mentioned before. And when I transitioned out of the classroom, I did a lot of grant writing for one of the nonprofits that me and a few colleagues established the lead foundation. So a lot of our programming through that was working with middle and high school students, male mentoring programs, leadership development, college tours, scholarships. And from there, it just kind of transitioned like a number of people. Just take inventory of what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, and, and go where it takes you. And, you know, think about it. It took me here for tonight's interview. So that's that's, mm-hmm. that's a blessing. Seriously, that's a yeah. blessing. Definitely. I, um, I don't have... I don't have as extensive of a background as you, of course, in uh, community work, but I also, FamCoin, this page that, that we're having this live um, discussion on is also actually a charity cryptocurrency. So uh, a, a nice substantial 
portion of everything that we do is all based around community and helping the community out. We've already gone into schools to teach kids about cryptocurrency and understanding the blockchain, not just we haven't just gone around telling everybody, hey, just buy ours, don't worry about anything. No, we've been actually teaching people about the blockchain, starting with children in the school systems in Ohio. So that's working out for us. Actually, a large company had us come and teach their employees about cryptocurrency. So that's our way of helping to keep our community up to speed with what's happening. We've done coat drives. We did a Thanksgiving giveaway. You know, we have to do things in the community. I consider this to be a part of the community work. So um, every anybody, if you are in here watching, make sure you follow Mr. Snorton. Make sure you follow us. You want to stay in tune with what, definitely what he has going on. We're going to talk about this, the writing that he does and uh, everything that FamCoin has going on. Uh, I also run a nonprofit here that is based around, in Atlanta, based around um, pretty much mentoring black boys and men. And it's about leadership, pretty much. The way I feel, I feel a major issue that we have in our community is the way we see ourselves. So the issue is we see each other as black men a lot of times, not everybody. Generally, we see each other and you have to prove to me that you're not a threat first instead of vice versa. Whereas I, I come into it inherently not trusting you until you show me why I should trust you. Whereas it should be the other way around. Whereas I don't see you as a threat unless you give me reason to think so, you know? That's the, the way we see each other is the biggest reason why we are so comfortable violating each other. That's what I feel. So I feel like my nonprofit is all based around changing how we see ourselves, black men, change how we see ourselves. Right. And I love what you said, because ultimately it's about your self image. And, and I love what you're doing with cryptocurrency, because that's still a form of financial literacy. That's one of the programs that we've historically done through the LEAD Foundation. And when you think about it, financial literacy takes on different forms, whether it's traditional, crypto, uh, just understanding how stocks work, mutual funds, things of that nature, just even your budgeting. Um, so what you're doing is really important as that next wave of financial literacy. And to your point, we, we forget the importance of self-image and self-worth. And that has to be a universal thread with what we do. I mean, for obvious reasons, like you said, to your point, sometimes we do too much confrontational or adversarial because it looks different or it sounds different versus let's just like when you go to a restaurant, you take time to look at the menu and you ask questions and then you order. Well, why not do the same type of thing? You know, you're going to go eat take time don't dismiss the entire menu so to right. you ali seriously keep up the great work it's needed and mm -hmm. seriously it's needed so keep at it please do please do you know it's interesting about you being a writer every year i do a writing competition which for uh, middle school kids and um and we, we're going to talk about what style of writing and what type of uh, content you like but i'm into sci-fi heavy right so my goal is to get uh, more black kids into sci-fi. Not that, because black kids are already into sci-fi, but I mean, from a creative writing standpoint, you know what I mean? Oh. And that's the competition, the topics, like every year my topic is sci-fi. So you do a short story, max word, 1,000 words, and from fifth grade to, to eighth grade, 
because I feel like that's when kids really start to being able to express their uh, writing skill and they still have that great creativity of young, very young children. So um, I do the, the sci-fi writing competition every year because I want to promote that because people don't look at creative writing as a STEM thing, but it really is though. If, if, you, if you get kids to start thinking about technology, but mixing it with their young creativity, we, we, we get magic out of that. And I got some great stories from these kids. Look, first off, we undersell the importance of writing. We have to understand, like you said, the creative and critical thinking, the writing skills, your public speaking skills, even in a technology-driven arena, having command of different concepts, you know, is so important. Um, and what you're doing with the writing piece, we know that for some students, you know, writing about things that they enjoy makes it easier for the skill sets to come out. And what you're doing is you're not only capturing those people who have an interest, but you're giving people a challenge to tapping into skill sets that maybe they didn't realize or or didn't think were relevant um, or things along those lines. And now they're seeing, knowing a little bit about how to do this, how to transfer it into other areas is so important. And, um, you know, you, you spoke earlier about financial literacy, but just literacy overall, knowing the vocabulary as a starting point and not being afraid to take the creative ideas you have here and make them more concrete. So what you're doing, like I said before, is important. It is needed on so many levels. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your writing style. Where, where did you get your style from and what made you start saying, let me put it in a book? That's a good question. Um, I'll say the first teacher that I can think of that really, I'll say, galvanized my writing style is actually my freshman year of high school, social studies, Ms. Bradley. And she was old, old school. But in writing in regards to like social studies, understanding how you can explain anything through three lenses, the social factors, the economic factors and political factors. And that was the foundation for, for my writing through high school. And even in college, even though, of course, you're writing longer, more in depth, it came from those same principles. Now, fast forwarding to the books that I've written, I've been all over the place, to be honest with you. So like the three books I've written are going in totally different directions. So the first book, uh, Deeper Than Your Deepest Sleep, Thoughts in Love with Joseph Snorton, this is a poetry book. And it's right. based on... The so the backstory on the title is um, I was fortunate to attend the memorial service for Dr. Maya Angelou. A lot of people might not realize she was on faculty where I went to college, Wake Forest University, for a little bit over 30 years. In fact, the professorship that she had, the Reynolds Scholar, that's a lifetime appointment. So the only reason you're not one is if you pass on or if you do something like totally you know, outlandish. But I was able to go to her memorial service. But when I got my invite, it was the name of Joseph instead of Andrew. And me being the goofy person I am, I asked my parents if there was something they needed to tell me. I know I'm, I asked some of the goofiest questions, but mm. did some research and I actually have a distant relative by the name of Joseph. So in that book, we talk about the action of love through broader lenses, like the relationship you have with family, friends, loved ones, 
people in your life, people out of your life, self-reflection, which was one of the things that you talked about in regards to self-image. But what I did with it is the beginning of each chapter is a portion of the conversation so the reader knows the context. So that way, when they get into the poem, they can draw connections and they feel like you're being spoken with instead of spoken at. And um, like I said, that was my first book that I did in 2017. And, and I'll tell you a quick story before I pivot to the other books. One of the more powerful things about that was when I did a signing in the summer of 2018, I actually did signings in the area where I went to elementary school in North Jersey. Then that afternoon did a signing in the area I went to high school. And one of the chapters deals with transitioning out of a breakup. And um, one of the people who made the purchase noted that the way we told it captured how she felt but she still felt that way like 10 years later. And I'm thinking about people that needed the cathartic release, you know, from that particular chapter. But even the bigger thing is some people walking around feeling like they're not loved or they don't love themselves or things along those lines. And unfortunately, we've seen mishaps where people, you know, have been operating in a clouded space. So part of the motivation for writing it is before you do something drastic to yourself or other people, take inventory of the different lenses and actions love can take. Like I said, that family member that checks on you, um, that little kid who tugs on your pant leg, happy to see you, things along those lines. Like you might not, quote, experience love in the manner that you prefer, but by the same token, there's still a potential of it. So hopefully it allows people, you know, a sense of solace, hope, clarity, just venting, decompressing things along those lines. So that's poetry based. Nine Stories of Faith, which is my second book, goes in a different tangent because it's more interview based. And I looked at it through the lens of all of us are living with something, but some people live with something each and every day. And what I did is it is, there are elements of faith because the majority of people I interviewed are Christian background as well as Islamic and Hinduism. And they're not only talking about their biggest daily challenge, whether it was a physical health issue, mental health issue, life after incarceration, but they talked about how through the lens of their respective faith, their best usage of best practices in health and wellness, their support network, and probably just as big, changing what's going on between your left and your right ears, how they can still live lives of power and purpose. So even if, quote, you've fallen short, it doesn't mean you've fallen off. And, and just, and then just having that interfaith conversation. So even in the intro, I know, um, for, for our, our Islamic colleagues, when you do the traditional greeting, wassalamu alaikum, alaikum assalam, it's peace unto you and peace back. Now you might not be a Muslim, but you can't, I mean, come on, if people are greeting you in that respectful a manner, come on. Or even for people that go to church and they have expressions of friendship. What are you doing? Peace unto you and peace back. So if we do a better job of talking about, let's say, these commonalities within the faith community, there's no telling potentially what we could do in regards to stewardship, advocacy, you know, social change, things along those lines. And even if faith isn't your thing, the fact that these are people who are living through things and still able to do something so it lets you know that you have the capacity to still do. So I go from poetry to interview 
to sports. Remember how I talked about, you know, realizing in high school I couldn't swing, a, you know, swing a bat. So, mm-hmm. I mean, not nine stories, nothing minor focuses on my sports coverage of minor league baseball, um, mainly in uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi. And I was very intentional with interviewing African-American players because we know since the 70s, 80s, that percentage of African-American players has dipped tremendously. It's probably maybe about somewhere between 7 and 10% of all major league players are African-American. And I, I know that, for example, image set, I mean, images are important. So I was very intentional with interviewing mainly African-American players, a few of whom are actually in the major leagues right now, not only just their backstories and like the lessons learned from the game and game coverage and photography and things of that nature, but I did an insert on the Negro Southern Leagues Museum located in Birmingham, Alabama. And a lot of people don't realize that museum has a larger set of memorabilia than the museum in Kansas City. And on top of that, as a price point, and they might have changed the prices, but if you had a group of nine or less, it was free for you to go. If you had a group of more than nine, it was a dollar to go. And it's on the same block as the ballpark where the Birmingham Barons play. So the Birmingham Barons, yes, sir. Can you say what, because I didn't even know about the Southern Museum. I only knew about the one in Kansas City. Can you say where that one is at? Where's the one in, you say Alabama? Sure, the Negro Southern Leagues Museum is located in Birmingham, Alabama. It's actually on the same block as the minor league ballpark where the Birmingham Barons play. And from that whole civil rights grid with the um, um, uh, Civil Rights Museum and then the, um, I forget the specific name of the church where the four little girls were burnt, I mean, were bombed, unfortunately. That grid is maybe like a mile away from it. And the neat thing with the Negro Southern Leagues Museum it has the largest set of archives of Negro Leagues memorabilia. And on top of that, the price points, if it's nine or less, it's free to go. And if you have a group of more than that, it's only a dollar per person. And another neat thing with it being on the same block as the Birmingham Barons, the Birmingham Barons, they are a minor league affiliate of the major league team, the Chicago White Sox. They get their name from the Birmingham Black Barons. So they're actually acknowledging the Negro Leagues team that played in Birmingham. So I felt through the lens of sports, you know, just different, you know, sporting options, um, a little bit of history. There's um, and even just through the lens of journalism, like there, there are spaces where we need to be. And. Don't be afraid about being the one or the only. If anything, you're there for a reason. And don't let anyone tell you different. Seriously, don't let anyone tell you different. And and I'm grateful to the players that opened up. A player like a Travis Demerit, who was playing at the at the time I interviewed him, he was playing with the Gwinnett Stripers, which are just a level below the Atlanta Braves. And he actually has seen Major League time with the Detroit Tigers. He's back with the Atlanta Braves system. It was great interviewing Travis Trammell, who at the time I interviewed him was the Cincinnati Reds' number one prospect. He's since been traded to um, San Diego and Seattle. And then last year, he actually saw Major League Baseball action with the Seattle Mariners. And he still regards one of the top 20 prospects in Major League Baseball. It was great 
interviewing um, Trey Harris, who's from Metro Atlanta, drafted towards the end of the draft, but he's one of the Braves' top 10 prospects. So it's not so much where you get drafted as not you're here, just make the most of your opportunity. And he's probably a year or two away from getting called up on the major league team. Um, one of the non-African-American players I interviewed, Braden Shoemake, when I interviewed him, he was the first of the 2019 draft picks to get to double A. So you have Major League Baseball, which is the top, triple A, double A, single A. So he was like two, three months removed from playing college ball. And I interviewed him for his double A debut. I did his first interview on the double A level. So just some of those moving parts and just looking at the sport a little bit differently, whether it's something you want to play, something you want to coach, or even through the lens of, you know, press and media and journalism. Hey, if, if, if you have a credential, you deserve to be there. It doesn't make a darn bit of difference. If it's one or 50,000, you're there. Right. Don't let anyone tell you different. The, you talked about the media side. I didn't. How do you get media credentials like that? That's a good question. <laughs> here's the. I'm here's, interested in, in doing. Here's that. the way, and, and I don't mind sharing it. Here's so. Here's what happened for me. And um, in 2019, I was already already had my show with Status Network, and I still have that with them. And through our network, we have our media badges. And to be honest with you, what I did is I made the request starting here in Gwinnett um, to cover the Gwinnett Stripers game. From there is a matter of sending the request, but providing documentation to show, yeah, I'm really who I say I am. So I sent like the show links, things along those lines. Uh, They approved my request. And then I just kind of duplicated that for the other teams that I covered. So then what happened is during the fall of 2019, I was able to do college football coverage um, where, I went to, where I went to college, Wake Forest University, and I covered basically the entire season. That included, um, you know, working out of the press box, doing post-game interviews, things of that nature. Then from there, it's almost like you use one to help you get the opportunity for the other. Then before the pandemic, I was covering minor league hockey and the hockey team that I covered So if the NHL is the top level in North America, you have the NHL, then it's the AHL, which is the American Hockey League, then the ECHL, East Coast Hockey League. So I was doing the East Coast Hockey League, which is two levels below NHL. And from there, it's like you're showing that you've got a body of work. And if it's an event that you want to do, this is just free game. As long as you can document that you're doing something, go ahead and apply. Like, if you get denied, you get denied. But Mm -hmm. you know you're going to get a no if you don't even ask. And to prove my point, this is my media credential from covering the Gator Bowl, one of the New Year's Six Bowls, like three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I'm not on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, ESPN, CNN, but guess what? I was in there. I did the, um, well, they did it virtually when they announced the replacement team for Texas A&M Rutgers. I was on the virtual call. They fielded one of my questions. Then the day before the game, when they had the full press conference with the bowl game officials, 
the team captains from Rutgers and the head coach, the team captains from Wake Forest and the head coach. I was there. And guess what? They fielded my questions for the day of the game, worked in the press box like all the other Jacksonville media, a lot of media from New York, New Jersey, some of the media from the Winston-Salem area. Then post-game, I'm in the post-game area. Uh, Rutgers head coach fielded my questions. The player of the game for Rutgers fielded my question. Head coach for Wake Forest fielded my question. The play- So all I'm going to say is don't – I'll put it like this. The size of your platform is important to a point, but what's more important is if you have a platform, use it constructively. You never know where it's going to take you. And if you had told me that I would have been covering a New Year's Six Bowl game, covering, you know, a college football team, you know, where I went to school, but in one of the Power Five conferences, or heck, even chopping it up with you for crying out loud. So don't short sell your talents. Even if other people want to short sell your talents, don't you be one of those people. Seriously, don't be one of those people. And, and, And hey, the only thing you can do is try. You might not get it, but you know you're never going to get it if you don't ask or if you don't hone your skills or don't, you know, challenge yourself. Step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Like covering minor league baseball, yeah, to be honest with you, I was the only person that looked like me in the press box. Mm-hmm. But then I was the only person at all doing pregame interviews. And in a lot of cases, I was the only person doing postgame. And even what I did to get a better respect and appreciation for what photographers do, like for my league ball, I would spend three innings in those boxes where the photographers are and do my own photography. And there are a couple of times I had a guest photographer that worked with me, but you learn how to do and you have a better idea of what it can look like. That might not be your expertise, but if you can, if you, you know, have to do it, you know, you can do a capable job. Um, college football, even this past season, I would spend the first half of the field, first half of the game on field doing video clips and photography. Then the second half, I'm up in the press box writing up my stuff. And then what made it a little bit easier this year, you know, because of COVID, they did post game through Zoom. And then after that, you're able to finish up your stuff and go. So at least I have an idea of what it looks like. And if I have to do it, I can. But like I said, I'm not on the biggest platform. But don't don't be intimidated by the size of your platform. As long as you have one, use it to the best of your ability. Seriously. Worst thing that happens is no. Okay, didn't happen. Let me see what adjustments I need to make and let's try it again. That's it. Man, that's you you, you gave us a lot of game just now, man, about the, the books, the direction of the books that you wrote, and um just the tips on if, for anybody who wants to get in the media. You know, that's that's a good word right there. The the I, I read a little bit about you and I saw that you were the president of the Black Alumni Association at yeah. Wake Forest. Yeah. Um, First of all, how do you get a job like that? And then what does that job entail? What do you have to do? How do I get a job like that? It really kind of all started back in 2011. To this day, I I have my suspicions, but to this day, I don't even know who nominated me for one of the boards at Wake Forest. So the way that Wake works is you have the board of trustees, 
which I'm not in that price range, <laughs> to be honest with you. Then you've got the Board of Visitors and you've got the Alumni Council. So when I got elected to Alumni Council, it was supposed to be for a four-year time period, 2011 to 2015. They extended me to 2016. And then I got elected as the president of the Association of Wake Forest University Black Alumni. Um, and this is voluntary, but I'll tell you what, even at this level, don't short sell voluntary things. And here's what I'll tell you. One of the biggest lessons I've learned from previously being on alumni council for serving as Association Wake Forest University Black Alumni President for four years, that was from 2011 to 2015, 27, since 2017, I've been on the board of the School of Divinity at Wake Forest University. Engagement, there's something that can be said for engagement. And, and I'll say this, when you have an opportunity to have a seat at the table, do so, but don't let yourself get full by what you're being served. And here's what I mean by that. There was one year I was the only African-American on alumni council. There was one year, and, and I'm not going to get into all that, but I was the only one. And I'll just be blunt. Sometimes people take titles a little bit too seriously, like you think you are special or different. And what I made sure to do is be strategic when there are certain things I need to speak up and out about, I did. But even more importantly, as I was rolling off, I'll just level with you. Every person I nominated to be a board member, African-American, guess what? That percentage went up from like a blip to like 20, 25%, including when people I nominated is now rolling off of being president of alumni council. So I'll say this, engagement, there's something that can be said for engagement. You know it with the investment you're doing in your nonprofit. You can talk all day about what's not happening in the community, but if you don't step your foot in there, it's like playing armchair quarterback. And when you engage, you learn, you connect, you bring something to the table, you figure out you know, where to advocate. And sometimes advocacy means just bringing the question up so the people you bring with you or behind you can push it further. So it's not always about you and your title. Um, mm -hmm. But the most important thing is when you're in a position, utilize it to the best of your ability. Build, you know, relationship building is important, but don't be afraid to stand on your own two feet and say what you need to say, whether it's a conversation that no one wants to have or one that they're trying to avoid, because at some point it's got to happen. Like I said, you know, even though like the makeup of what campus is maybe like, I don't know, like 10% African-American, you couldn't tell me that one year I was the only person that you couldn't find anybody else. That was a bold face lie. And right. that and you up to like 20, 25%. So it goes both ways. You have to be willing. I think one of the best pieces of advice I got was sometimes you have to be willing to put yourself in uncomfortable spaces and places and have those uncomfortable conversations. Because guess what? Without going too deep in history, part of the reason we have the access we have is because of people known and unknown who put themselves in uncomfortable spaces and places. So like that sporting event we enjoy or that restaurant or that vacation area or whatever, there was somebody who we will may not ever know that put themselves in an uncomfortable space and place so that others could come behind and kick the door in. So, mm -hmm. so you know, um, you know, FAM, FAM stands for 40 acres and a mule. Mm -hmm. So 
That's that's the vibe. You know, a lot of people haven't heard of Claudette Colvin. Are you familiar with Claudette Colvin? No, I am not. And that's another thing. Claudette Colvin is is the strength behind the civil rights movement. She did what Rosa Parks did before Rosa Parks did it. <laughs> but she was looked at as she wasn't proper. She wasn't somebody the movement could really get behind. She was an unwed young mother. So she wasn't someone they wanted to prop up like that. But she was the first one that they drug off the bus because she said, I'm not going to um, get up out of my seat. She also actually saw it all the way through and testified in the trial that helped change happen. You know, uh, the pressure was on Miss Rosa Parks so heavy that she ended up leaving. She didn't end up testifying, but Claudette Colvin did. So that that speaks to that speaks to what you were saying about people that we don't even know breaking down doors for us. And I'm assuming that's what you wanted to be when you were the only person on that council. You wanted to try to be. They might ten, uh, thirty years from now, they might not know that there was a guy who had to bring in more black people because mm-hmm. he just didn't like the representation at a school with 10%, at least 10% population. I'll put it to like this. And and you said a lot of things, like I said before, there are people unknown, even with having, and I'm sure you're familiar with before the Mayflower, um, you know, and other, you know, other great texts. Um, there are people unknown that made sacrifice. I'll tell you something else. And, you know, how they say you have a praying grandmother I'll tell you what, some of the people who quietly were the biggest advocates for me as a student were the were the staff, the lunch lady, the custodial staff. When you talk about, you know, people that P-R-A-Y for you and what have you, and I'll tell you an even bigger Wake Forest testimony. Um, she's retiring now as provost at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Dr. Barbie Oaks. But to talk about a powerful testimony, uh, a little bit about Wake Forest history. There's actually a town called Wake Forest outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, where the current campus is in Winston-Salem has been there maybe since the 50s. The the coming full circle piece is Dr. Oak's grandfather was one of the people on the construction crew for the Salem campus. However, it wasn't until the early 1960s until the first black student was there. So at the time he was on that construction crew, African-American black students weren't even allowed to be on campus. And I'll tell you another interesting twist. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. actually spoke at Wake Forest before they admitted black students. That's a little like a little known fact. But I'm saying all to say she went from her grandfather helping build that campus, but students who look like you or me couldn't go to where she graduated from there, came back years later, faculty went all the way up to a assistant to the provost, then got the provost position, which is basically a step below the university president, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So I'm saying a lot to say, don't worry about where you start from, just get started and you never know where it can take you. And don't think, you know, to your point, yeah, having whatever the presence or polish or whatever has a space in place, but you know, it's bigger than that. If you are passionate and purposeful and the things that you're advocating for are about your individual growth, your collective growth, your community growth, don't worry about the, don't worry about the delivery, just deliver the message. Don't worry about the delivery, deliver the message. Yeah. 
Seriously. So we can, like, when I taught, kids might not have known the vocabulary. I'm like, just describe what you're talking about because it gives me an idea that you know the idea. We can always fill in the vocabulary later, but um, no, don't worry about your delivery. There are people that are smooth as silk and don't know a damn thing of what they're talking about. It's true. It's true. That might be as smooth as sandpaper, but they've got a whole lot more substance. So don't be worried about your delivery. Just worry about delivering the message. Somebody, somebody will definitely pick it up. Um, I'm, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but what I wanted to do real quick, for anybody who wants to become an author, can you give them three tips, you know, three tips to think about before starting a book or, you know, while they're in the process of writing it, just three good tips for them? Yeah. First thing is get started. And I know people have heard that the first, the three main things I'll say is get started. Don't worry about putting it down perfectly. Just put it down. And then the next thing is just find your voice. Those are the three things. The first thing is getting started. There's no magic formula everybody kind of starts the same way whether you get a you know one of those old school composition books you talk into something or whatever the first thing is get started and the second thing it has to be a habit like it's not like i'm gonna sit down and write a book in one day it doesn't work that way right. you have to figure out what consistency looks like for you so for example if you had a fitness goal and you worked out four days a week, five days a week, maybe that's your baseline. Or if you had a cooking goal and you cooked every other day, maybe that's your starting point. So consistency looks different to different people, but figure out what consistency looks like for you. And then just find your voice. So whether you're doing poetry or interviewing or whatever, find your voice and find your style. And, and as a side note, just like we're doing now, we're talking with, we're listening to, we're sharing and exchanging. And sometimes authors get so wrapped up in the masterpiece that we forget we still have to talk with our audience and talk with people. So you can still show that you know whatever, but talk with somebody. Because guess what? Joe Jones or Jill Jones that you're talking with, they might know some things that you don't. And you'd want them to talk with you and share an exchange. So that's basically it. Get started, figure out what consistency looks like for you and use that as your baseline and just the importance of voice and, and realize it's not just your voice, but at times your voice is helping others kind of say, hey, this is what I'm talking about. Even what you're doing with the crypto piece, this is what we're talking about. What you're doing with the self-image and self-worth, this is what we're talking about. And I guarantee you, you and your colleagues are talking with people. Right. And when you're talking with people, you can get so much further than talking at them. Three, three very good tips. Very good tips. Have you taught um, financial literacy before? So it sounded like you kind of hinted at. A little bit. Um, I, I Look at here. You learn something new every day. I know like through our foundation, we do the financial literacy pieces. We would bring in different guests and we would talk about like the essentials, budgeting, um, setting up mutual funds, those types of things. Obviously, you know, with the crypto piece, you know, that is obviously relatively recent. 
But by the same token, it's something that's important. And like you're showing people, look, let's look at the different lenses through which, you know, you can identify and talk about financial literacy, building up your credit, things along those lines. And I, that just being honest, talking about mistakes you made. I, I made mistakes in college. Oh, wow. Let me get that case. Let me get that. Sure. I, I, I was one of those people. I'll just, be, I'll let you. I was one of those people. And, and it's, it took some time for me to build up my credit. That's well, just, but just talking about mistakes you made. So other people don't make those same types of mistakes. And, and it's almost like, and you can attest to this with, with the work you're doing. People see you where you are, but they don't know where you've been. And when you are open to sharing where you've been, you're more relatable. Yep. It's like you're walking with us instead of beyond us. Mm-hmm. So that's that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, man. Um, well, hey, everybody on here, man, make sure you follow author Andrew Snorton, man. He has clearly, if you've been on here the whole time, he has some good, good words, good pieces, good nuggets for us to take forward with us. Um, before we get off of here, and again, um, if you whatever, I don't, I'm not sure how you guys conduct your training, your final financial literacy. We have an education department in our in our group in Famcoin. So, you know, if you wanted us to give the, a basic course at your um, with you guys, we could do that. I have done a financial seminar where I teach personal finance because I think a lot of people try to get they jump straight to investment and they don't have their own personal finances together. You can't invest really if you don't have any disposable income to do anything with because you have bad you have bad habits. So I, I've taught I've taught a course like that. And one thing that I did that a lot of people don't do, I when I organized my seminar, I brought a psychologist in to speak because a lot of people don't understand where their insecurities around money come from. So I brought the psychologist in to give that aspect that a lot of people don't even think about. Well, right. I'll tell you what, what I definitely want to do is I know for like my full broadcast show, obviously I'm bringing you on because more people, just like you're helping amplify my voice. So this is recorded, so I can't back out of it. Just like you're helping me amplify my voice. And this is another thing. We have to do more of this cross amplifying. There's, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's enough room and enough content for everybody. So whether it's a standard article or having you as a guest on on the full show so just like you're helping me amplify to your audience hey turn about is fair play so it's on recording you can run this back but this is what we're going to do and that's all there is to it definitely so guys we're going to let you guys go we did a a good solid 45 this is a a heavy 45 this is you know some people could have stressed this out about three hours we got a heavy 45 in here for everybody uh, make sure you follow Arthur Snorton. Make sure you follow the FanCoin page. Um, get over to FanCoin.com. You can learn about cryptocurrency as a whole, or you can learn about FanCoin in particular. Uh, make sure you go over to FanCoin.io. Check out the ICO page. And um, if, if you want to donate also, like I said, we feed the community school supplies, you know, Backpack giveaways, toy giveaways. We we do all of that type of stuff too. Like I said, we're a charity cryptocurrency. So we make sure that you see our faces. You know that we're real people. We're not bots sitting behind a computer just trying to manipulate some numbers and run off with a quick 
you know, if if anything goes wrong, you know, there's people you can go uh, hold accountable for it because we have our faces out in the forefront. Okay, so we want to make sure that transparency is one of our biggest pieces. A lot of people are afraid of cryptocurrency because it does not have enough transparency attached to it. So even now, with everything being down right now, that's not something that any any particular group in crypto can control. That's the entire market being down. Right. So everybody seeing crypto down, don't be don't be afraid of it. You know, even if you only have five dollars to invest, I guarantee things are going back up. Even if your five dollars turns into 20, you're talking about a 300 percent return. You know, at least you can hang your hat on on the return percentage, even if you can't retire off that five dollar investment. Okay, so I would say uh, I want everybody to say thanks to Mr. Storton. If you guys have any questions and you want us to come back on and do this again, let us know. DM either one of us. We'll set it up again. Like he said, I'll be a guest on his show as well. And uh, stay tuned for the next fam conversations, guys. Thank you for joining. All right. Thank you for having me. And again, everybody take good care out there. Seriously. All righty. Peace.